Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. (laughs) And we are coming back at you this week with our little install. That's not little. With our installment, part one of who knows kidnappings. Who knows kidnappings? That really just rolls our head off the <laughs> no. tongue there, eh? Part, part one of three or four. Who knows? That's an, what I meant to say. It's a saga. Yeah. We have an interview with our one of our closest friends who unfortunately was the victim of a kidnapping, but also the survivor of a kidnapping, which is super awesome, and we love her. So that will probably be episode two or three or part two or three of episode, you know, 11 or 12 or something. So lots of good. Yeah, lots of good. Lots of good things coming. One of the reasons I think I'm so interested in kidnappings, too, is that oftentimes there's survivors. Um, And I feel like a lot of the crimes that we've talked about so far on the show have been victims of murder And so, you know, there's other crimes out there, uh, many of which um, have survivors and those survivors have like pretty amazing stories to tell. And I've read a ton of books, weirdly enough, of survivors of uh, assaults and kidnappings. So it's just something that I've become really familiar with and have kind of gone down a weird rabbit hole with. So I'm guessing most victims of crime are survivors and people that get killed are not a majority well people who get murdered the majority of them die (laughs) that's what i meant i'm just saying that like kidnappings (laughs) oftentimes we get the survivor's story you know Mm -hmm. because disappearances you know that are like unsolved we can't know it and that's often i can't argue with that (laughs) logic okay you win. All right. Th- thank you. Well, that was easy. Well, there's a lot of other winners in this show as well. So we'll talk about them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. This is getting weird. All right. So I got a lot of my sources from ThoughtCo, which is a website, kind of like one of those websites that has a bunch of stuff like Ranker and stuff on it. Like Costco. Kind of like Costco. And All right. So... I also got a lot of information from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, um, NCMEC, which is not easy to say. I also got information from APM Reports and Wikipedia, which I don't normally don't do, but I'm doing like a big rundown of some of the most notable cases of kidnappings. And then um, APM Reports says a lot of crucial stuff about why we see certain patterns in kidnappings and what that can mean in terms of society. All right. With that all being said. All right. Let's, let's all right. get into it. Kidnapping is a crime. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all, right, yeah. all right. All right. Is that a question? <laughs> no. No, no, no. That's a statement. <laughs> okay, good. All right. It occurs when a person is taken from one place to another against their will or a person is confined to a controlled space without legal authority to do so. 
According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, kidnapping is a felony in every single state. And there are different degrees. For instance, first degree almost always involves physical harm, the threat of physical harm, or if the victim is a child. Second degree kidnapping is often charged when the victim is unharmed and left in a safe place. The third kind of kidnapping is parental kidnapping. It's usually dealt with under a completely different set of rules and guidelines because the person is, you know, it's not random and the person's connected to them. And there's an average sentence of about three years in prison, depending on circumstances, whereas like the other ones often carry like 20 plus years. But some of the ones were like the parent is kidnapping the kid. Sometimes those end really badly. Yes. A lot of times it's custody battles and right. stuff. There's a really famous one that I didn't include in my list, um, Yoko Ono's daughter. Before she was married to John Lennon, her daughter was in a custody battle with, well, the daughter wasn't, but Yoko Ono was in a custody battle with her ex-husband and he abducted her and joined like a fairly friendly sounding Christian cult. And then basically the daughter chose to be there. And then like, I don't think Yoko Ono. Yeah, I don't think Yoko Ono ended up talking to her for another like 15 years. So it's like that was technically an abduction or a kidnapping, but the daughter was like fine with it. And I don't, I don't think the, the, I don't think the, I don't think she wanted to press charges. I don't think Yoko Ono did either. I don't know. I don't know too, too much about it, but that would be definitely one of those kind of parental kidnapping gray area things. All right. So this is something really important I wanted to note, especially after looking at a bunch of the quote unquote most famous abduction cases. So APM Reports, who is really, really awesome. They I believe they put out the podcast in the dark, which I'll talk about them in a little bit. The stereotypical kidnapping of a child by a stranger is vanishingly rare accounting for less than 1% of all missing child cases. When the crimes do happen, they make an impact, tapping into some of the public's greatest fears and insecurities. You know, stranger danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also reveal society's prejudices. The cases that rise to prominence tend to involve white children, often from wealthy families, although the FBI estimates that more than a third of missing kids are black. The imbalance in attention is so pronounced that in 2008, a former police officer and her sister-in-law launched a foundation called Black and Missing. High-profile abductions also, to some degree, trace social mores. In the 50s, for example, the motivations largely shifted from the collection of ransom money to the satisfaction of sexual desires. Cases of pedophilia existed previously, of course, but society may have been too prim to acknowledge or publicize them before the liberating of the 1960s. So it's just interesting. So it's not necessarily that, you know, all missing kids are white and cute and blonde, you know, or that like they're prominent families and stuff. It's just that's what gets brought to the forefront, you know, especially the Madeline McCann thing. I don't know if you know that one. It was a little missing girl in Portugal and her family was on vacation. And that was one of the largest hunts for a child in the history of Europe. And it was, I believe the mom was American and the dad was Scottish. Mm -hmm. 
And people in Portugal were super pissed off just being like, uh, what about all the missing kids that are Portuguese? Like, right. what the fuck, man? Because it was Portuguese money being used. Oh, but yeah. those parents just freaked out. I mean, they had um, the privilege of, you know, family with money or were able to take off of work or whatever. But they were on the forefront. They they had access to media and stuff. So that definitely does say something about society, about what on the whole we, you know value unfortunately all right i'll go back to some of the more statistical stuff from the national center for missing and exploited children which we'll talk about them a little bit more kidnapping is considered one of the most serious crimes and there is no statute of limitations on kidnapping did not know that do you know who started the national center for missing and exploited children no john walsh oh well that makes sense he does a lot of awesome stuff um, so in 19, 1984, John and his wife, it looks like Reve Walsh, and other child advocates, so they weren't the only ones, they founded this center, you know, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, as a private nonprofit organization to serve as the National Clearinghouse and Resource Center for misinformation, for information, uh, not misinformation, <laughs> for information about Sweet. missing and exploited children. It's just kind of crazy that prior to this center in 1984, which is when I was born, there just wasn't anything. So if you had gone missing when you were like seven, see ya. Yep. Yep. So, well, I'm glad you just didn't. make another one. Yeah. Um, so according to the FBI in 2018, there were 4,224,000-ish entries for missing children. In 2017, it was the number was pretty close to there as well. That's a lot. That's a whole lot of missing children. Yeah. And so one way that they kind of determine that number, too, is that if a child runs away and the parents report them as missing and then they come back and they run away again that counts as like two like they don't clear things they keep things open oh i know i know but there's a whole lot of kids going missing where are they going disneyland really no i mean like maybe like three of them During the last 35 years, the NCMEC's national toll-free hotline, which is 1-800-THE-LOST. Wait, is that seven number? Oh, it is. Wow, that's a good... That's a good... Let's dial it's a registered it. trademark, though, oh. so... We can't use it for our <laughs> podcast. Why would we? Don't call us there. Yeah. They'll be like, stop calling. Yeah. Um, they order them a pizza. So that 1-800 number for the last 35 years, they have received more than 4.9 million phone calls. Isn't that crazy? And they have circulated billions of photos of missing children. They've assisted law enforcement in more than 300,000 cases. And they have trained more than almost 400,000 law enforcement and health care professionals. Those are some numbers. I know. I just, it's insane. Yeah. Um, obviously, there was a need. Also, they have uh, like a, a team of counselors and volunteers called Team Hope through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they have supported over 71,000 families who are affected by their children missing. So in 2018, the cases that law enforcement or the cases that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children assisted law enforcement with, this is the breakdown. 92% were endangered runaways. So 
I really hate the cases where the police are like, oh, they probably just ran away mm. because that's terrible to just assume that. But also, I mean, that's 92 percent last, you know, la- pretty much last year, 2018. Mm-hmm. So that's I don't know. It's just crazy. Like, I did not know that number was so high. Four percent are family abductions. So probably like parents in custody battles or, you know. 3% critically missing young adults ages 18 to 20. And then less than 1% are non-family abductions. 1% get lost, injured, or otherwise missing. Of the near, like, you know, fall off a cliff. Right, right. Of the nearly 26,300 runaways reported to N- NCMEC in 2019, one in six were likely victims of child sex trafficking. All right, so the most notable cases I found uh, after going through every single list of abductions and kidnappings, which I really hope no one looks at my Google search history. Oh, they are. <laughs> AI is on that shit. The most notable cases I found that I either were was also interested in. Some of the really, really kind of really old cases I didn't put on there. Because eh, there just there just isn't as much information as the more notable ones of of recent, but probably the most it was called the crime of the century. Uh, one of the most notable ones is the Lindbergh baby. Do you remember who Charles Lindbergh was? Or I remember the name. I, yeah, the he's the guy. He was the the pilot who was the first to cross. I think it was the. He like invented some sort of cheese too, right? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure no. That's Limburger. That's Limburger cheese, I think. That's just stinky. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was the first to cross an ocean <laughs> in a plane without fueling up or something. Okay. And he was supposed to be like he like was across, supposed. He's the first one to cross the Atlantic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And uh, and he was like a babe. Oh really? Yeah. And this is 19 like 30s, and he was supposed to be like the next president. Of what? The United States. (laughs) So anyways, the really, really, really beautiful, prominent family. His child was kidnapped from his crib in their family home. And then uh, $50,000 ransom was put on the baby boy. But he was found dead a couple months later after they paid the ransom. And the ransom... there's It's a really crazy rabbit hole story, which I won't go down today. But there was, like, marked bills and there was, like, sketchy cars and weird carpenters. And the person that was eventually found to be guilty of the crime, which there's a lot of controversy there, was um, Bruno Hauptmann, who was an an unemployed carpenter. And how they found him guilty of it is super interesting. It has to do with, like, matching up certain tiles that he, like, stole from Charles Lindbergh's, like... Uh, work site when they were building his house and stuff is really interesting hmm. but uh, that kidnapping brought about the federal kidnapping act of 1932 in which kidnappings were made a federal crime i guess they weren't before that you could just steal babies and it won't it wasn't a big deal i guess so i'm gonna make a big jump forward about 50 years and talk about steven stainer unfortunately one of the reasons he's so famous unfortunately there's a lot of unfortunate things about the Stainer family. His brother ended up becoming a serial killer. So that's kind of a bummer. That's Carrie Stainer, who was 
And weirdly enough, he's known for being kind of a hot nudist. Anyways, well, I'm sure. hot nudist. Yes. When he was captured, he was naked. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I want to say that he was. So they didn't have to. I think with the name Stainer, you're just kind of fucked from the start. (laughs) Uh, So Stephen Stainer, not Carrie Stainer, he was abducted when he was seven years old in 1972. And he was imprisoned for seven years in a cabin in the woods. And apparently his grandfather only lived a couple hundred feet away and he didn't know that. Oh, because he was so young, he didn't know. This is in Merced, California. He was, yeah, he was abducted by a guy named the creepiest man on earth. Oh, every picture of him online. He's just like, that is where the term molester glasses comes from is Keith Parnell. And so he abducted Stephen Steiner when he was seven years old in 1972. And then later on, when Stephen Steiner was like 14 years old, Keith Parnell abducted another boy named Timothy White, who was only five years old. And Steiner freaked out. And he took the little boy and busted out of the house and ran through the woods through, I, I think they were in the closest uh, major city was Ukiah. And went all the way to the police and the police didn't believe him. He had to like because he had been missing for seven years and they're like, you're just some vagrant boy, you know, that looks all crazy with a little kid on your back, you know. And so um, it seems like in these stories, cops always are dropping the ball. Yeah. And another thing, too, is that everybody's questioned all of these abduct abducted people, abductees. um, They're all like. They're all all given like the side eye and it sucks, you know, because all of these if you have the strength to be able to survive that kind of like abuse, you know, mental, physical, sexual abuse for that long and then to like not be believed, it's fucking insane. But eventually he was able to they like located like missing posters of him and were able to like through a scar it, that happens a lot to scars and birthmarks right. through a scar. Uh, they were able to find out who he was. Apparently he was just like this awesome dude. And then unfortunately, 10 years after, um, you know, he met a girl, I think at 19 or 20 years old and they got married and he had a really great life. And then he died in a motorcycle accident when he was 24 years old. And then his brother became a serial killer. It's just a very strange kind of weird rabbit hole you could go down with that one as well. There's a lot. All of these cases could be very rabbit holy. Rabbit holy. It's going to be a theme of these episodes. Yeah, there's lots of rabbit holes to go down. Um, Another really famous abduction that a lot of people know about is Patty Hearst. And if you do not know who the Hearst family was or is, she is the granddaughter of the American publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst. And that's Hearst Castle and all that stuff. She was abducted or kidnapped in 1974 by the left-wing terrorist group, the Symbionese Liberation Army. I believe she was abducted for about, was it like 19 months or something? And they, uh, she said that they raped and threatened her with death if she ever tried to escape. And then in 1976, after, oh, so they like did like bank robberies and stuff. And so they actually convicted her in 1976 of the crimes and then that was like a big thing with Stockholm syndrome saying, you know, she felt all this like, and dude, she was being held in under duress. It's not like she necessarily believed well, their message. There's that photo of her with the machine. Yeah. Right? And it's a really, really famous photo. Yeah. Right. But, but like, if she didn't do what they said, 
she was she would they were going to kill her. So I guess she had to be somewhat complicit in the crimes. I don't know. It's it's a weird one. Did they give her a water gun? Why couldn't she just shoot them? Exactly. Well, that you're going to see that it's a very much it's a psychological torture thing that they do. And you're going to see it in a lot of these abduction cases where it's like you don't necessarily fall in love with your abductor or anything like that. They psychologically torture you into submitting to them wholly. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Um, she was actually convicted to she was convicted and sentenced to 35 years in prison. That's a long time for being like half victim, half criminal, I guess. Well, robbing banks with. But she didn't. I don't think she killed anyone. She may have injured someone. I'm not sure. Uh, anyways, she, her sentence was later reduced to seven years. But get this. She was uh, her sentence was commuted by Jimmy Carter. And then she was pardoned by Bill Clinton. So, like, two different presidents, like, vouch for her, you know? Interesting. Super interesting. So, there's, Got like I said, you could go down, up. yeah, you could definitely go down some rabbit holes with that one. Another really famous case that was fa- re- recently solved, actually, and if you want to know more about it, In the Dark Season 1 covers um, the case of Jacob Wetterling. He is from uh, St. Joseph, Minnesota, and he was kidnapped and murdered at the age of 11, in 1989, his abduction remained a mystery for 27 years. Just recently, in 2016, his remains were found, and they found the dude who did it was Danny Heinrich. He carried a gun and wore a mask and disappeared with Jacob. Jacob's disappearance led to one of the whitest manhunts in U.S. history and brought about the first federal law requiring states to register sex offenders in 1994, called the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act. That's another one that just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, that's a, yeah, but I mean a lot of the ones I'm going to be covering too like led about to major laws being changed. So yeah. like like Lindbergh and Wetterling and then there'll be more that that are a little more notable that you'll be like, "Oh, that's the person who inspired that law." Yeah. Another super interesting one that just gets mentioned a lot because it's bizarre, a couple of them are just very bizarre, is Frank Sinatra Jr. And again, this is another one you could go through down a rabbit hole with. But at 19 years old, Frank Sinatra Jr. was just beginning to establish his own career and was abducted by thugs from a Las Vegas casino. Frank Sinatra, old blue eyes, paid the $240,000 ransom and right after the perpetrators were caught. A lot of people thought that Frank Sinatra Sr. had staged the kidnapping to get his son's name out there. (laughs) So that's kind of the conspiracy Uh, aspect of it, because it was just, it was very strange. Like, they didn't do much to him, and I think it only took them two days to catch the guys. That is, like, a pretty good publicity stunt. Yeah. They do that, you know. Even today. Yeah. Yeah. But they were saying that because his abduction happened, like, right after the assassination of JFK, who was a close friend of Sinatra's, they don't think that Frank Sr. would have been in the right frame of mind to stage his son's abduction. So a lot of people, again, say it's just a conspiracy, that there's no real evidence to it. And and the guys were convicted, and they were charged and convicted. So one of the most famous ones that is somewhat recent... It was solved in 2008, and it's one of, probably on the list, probably 
I, they're all terrible, but they might be the worst. Elizabeth Fritzel, and I know we watched a documentary a couple years ago about the biggest piece of shit on earth, uh, whatever his name is, Fritzel. Um, she, oh, Joseph Fritzel. She was sexually abused by her father starting at the age of 11, and then when she turned 18 years old, he lured her into his basement cellar. He said that he needed help with um, framing a door, and all she had to do was just hold up a piece of wood, and they ended up trapping her down there. Ooh. She was there from, are you ready, 1984 to 2008. She was down in the cellar for 24 years. That's insane. He locked her in there, and he told his police that his daughter had run away to join a cult, which, again, like, I can't. So he sexually assaulted her, physically assaulted her, and impregnated her eight times. He raised three of the children upstairs, which they called the upstairs children, and three others stayed with her downstairs, and they were the downstairs children. They lived in semi-darkness for a very long time, obviously. But one of the... Oh, and then a couple of them died. Two two of them died. Oy. This sounds like a X-Files I know. It's, it's horrendous. This one's... I mean, they're all terrible, but this one is just... This is insane. Yeah. So on April 19th, 2008, one of the quote-unquote downstairs children uh, underwent kidney failure. And Joseph Fritzel, Elizabeth asked her father if they could seek medical attention. So when they took the kid to the hospital, they were like... Yeah, there's no record of this kid. There's no, like, you're, this person doesn't exist. Books. Yeah. So then 11 days later, Elizabeth finally broke down and told the police what happened. He is still alive today. He's serving a life sentence, probably plus a million years. And he's like 85 or he's like really close to 90 years old. I wish he would just fucking die already. He's a terrible human being. That's crazy. Yeah, I, that's, that's horrendous. Yeah. And then I'm going to jump back a little bit in time again to John Paul Getty III. This one's really weird, too. So if you don't know, the Getty family, also very rich. So a lot of these are ransom ones. In 1973, John Paul Getty III was abducted for six months at age 16. The kidnappers were Italian gangsters. So, again, it kind of reminds me of the Frank Sinatra one a little bit, you know? Yeah. But they wanted $17 million. And the Getty dad at that time, was not the super rich Getty. It was the Getty Sr., the grandfather to John Paul Getty III that had all the money. And the father of this kid that was abducted asked John Paul Getty the first, hey, can I borrow $17 million? And he was like, no. Well, let me ask I, number I got, two. I got nine. Hey, number two. Number three wants to borrow $17 million. Well, so What do you think, number one? Yeah, so he's like, I have nine grandchildren. If I were to pay a $17 million ransom on all of them, I wouldn't have any money left. And I don't want to set a precedent. So he said no. So then three months later, the abductors cut off his ear. And they sent it to the family. But I think it got delayed in the mail because there was like an Italian strike. It was Christmas or something? No, no, no. It was, there was a strike. <laughs> so it took a while for the lock of hair and ear to get there. They were able to pay off $3 million of the ransom. And eventually, Getty III was released. He got his ear sewn back on, I believe, or had some really? kind of ear sewn back on. Returned to cinder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nine men were arrested, but only two were convicted of the crime. 
And it just sounds like John Paul Getty the first is not such a good guy. I don't know. I, I know that there's like the Getty Center and the Getty Museum and all that. So I know right. that there's very much a mark in Los Angeles, you know, prominence. But he sounds like kind of a dickhead. Anyways. You are number six. <laughs> Colleen Stan. This is actually one I had never heard of. And I don't, it actually doesn't come up a lot, but it's fucking horrible. I, I, look. So she was hitchhiking from Eugene, Oregon to Northern California when she was 20 years old. Don't do that. Those days are over. Not victim blaming here, but those days are over. And he, she decided to go with the nice looking married couple with a kid. Oh. And they placed the most terrifying wooden box I've ever seen before in my life. They placed a wooden box on top of her head and locked it to to her head. It kind of reminds me of that, um, what was that genius, like, Netflix thing? Did you watch that with me? It was, like, Evil Genius or something where they put the bomb around the guy's neck. And I there was like, and he was vaguely yeah. remember something. It kind of reminds me of that. And both of those cases just completely freaked me out. I don't know how long the wooden box was on her head, but they locked her in a coffin like box. And I've seen it. It really does look like a coffin. Like you, she had to lay down in it and her arms, she couldn't lift her arms. She was in that thing for 23 hours a day for seven years. That's crazy. Yeah. It and it sounds like the costume, the next curator costume for Portal. Oh, <laughs> God. I hope that he doesn't have to be in it for 23 hours a day for seven years. Yeah, really. She was only removed from the box to be sexually assaulted and tortured. That's fucking... What's crazy about this one, and I go back to that whole, like, oh, why didn't you try to get away and kind of accusing the victim of stuff, is that over time, and this is something that you'll see as, like, a pattern in a lot of kidnappings... Over time, it's this gradual release thing. And then it's like psychological torture, too, which is I'm going to let you out for five minutes. And then if you fucking do this thing, then I'm going to kill you and just testing them to see if they can trust them. And so eventually he did allow her to go out, even like went to go meet her parents and stuff. But again, like he threatened her with something called the company. And he basically said he had, like, snipers and people all around that would kill her entire family and her if she ever tried to escape. She eventually did get a job, and she actually called up her abductor and said, I'm going, and then left after seven years. Called his bluff? Yeah, I guess. Offensive detail. He was sentenced to 104 years in prison, where he remains today. And one of the reasons he was caught, because there was a lot of distrust in this woman's story, because she had seen her family and stuff during that time. The wife, Janice, she actually testified against her husband to get for immunity, even though she was very much part of it. So she actually never served any jail time. And that's unfortunately something we're going to see a lot, too, in these abduction cases, is the woman, you know, being this kind of co-conspirator co-rapist, co-assaulter, basically. And it, it doesn't sound like they are the brains of the operation at all, but it shows them getting immunity for testifying against their husbands or from their, you know, for their partners. The next one that's super duper famous, unfortunately, is Adam Walsh. And that is John Walsh's son. He was abducted in 1981 from Sears. And two weeks later, his head was found by a fisherman 
in a nearby body of water in Florida. And the murderer was long thought to be Otis Toole because he said that he was. And that's when he went on to host the show America's Most Wanted. Not Otis Toole, but John Walsh went on to host the show America's Most Wanted. (laughs) That'd be really weird if Otis (laughs) Toole was the host of that show. It'd be like, hi, I got no teeth. Yeah. I'm wanted. <laughs> I don't know. That um, was a great impersonation. Yeah, thanks. I, I don't think he even <laughs> say that much. He's not a, he's really, he's like a fish person. For a while, they Jeffrey Dahmer, I think, wanted to take credit for it, or people wanted to give credit to Jeffrey Dahmer. But I believe the case was finally closed in 2008. And for sure, although, again, there's speculation that, goes other places and other theories and stuff. Nothing that puts any shade on John Walsh, because I'm pretty sure he's like the best person in the world. The case was closed in 2008, and Tool is officially held accountable for the crime. Another really interesting one, the next two I'm going to cover, you'll you'll recognize the name, mm-hmm. and but you won't actually know the case. So you've heard of Megan's Law, right? Right. So Megan was a girl. Her name was Megan Conka. And in 1994 in New Jersey, she was abducted when she was seven years old and was raped and killed by a known sex offender in the neighborhood. And the parents were like, well, if we had fucking known that this piece of shit lived near us, we wouldn't have let her walk to the park alone, you know? So that is where Megan's Law comes from. Okay. Yeah, I remember that being in the news. Yeah. And then another one that, again, that you'll... You'll re- you'll recognize the name, but you probably don't know the case, which is Amber, the Amber Alert. Right. Yeah. So Amber Hagerman was abducted in 1996, riding her bike in a parking lot. She was later killed by her captor and then never identified, or, or who has never been identified, the kidnapper was. Her case was the inspiration for the Amber Alert notification system. A neighbor witnessed the kidnapping of the nine-year-old Hagerman and called the police. The girl's mother, father, and neighbor started looking for Amber, but sadly, a dog walker found her body four days after abduction. The crime remains unsolved to this day. And the next one, just a couple more, is Natasha Campush. And again, this is one of those cases where just so much shade is thrown at the victim, and I hate it. So this happened in 1998. She was 10 years fucking old. You know what I mean? Like, how much... You know, how much power does she have over her situation? She sounds sketchy already. Yeah, I'm, I'm sketched out by her. So she was held captive for about eight years, but specifically 3,096 days. And the reason I know that is that's the name of the book that she wrote, because oh. that's how long she was held in captivity. She basically was held behind a cement and steel enforced door behind the kitchen cabinet in this tiny little room. And yeah, she became, I mean, she was fucking 10 years old. And he did that kind of gradual release thing of like, I'm going to give you this, you know, freedom if you don't run away. I'm going to give you this thing if you don't run away. But then he would like violently rape and beat her constantly. And so she was fucking terrified. The one thing that kind of like went, that didn't go in her favor is when the police asked about a trip they had taken together to like a, a skiing place. And she she denied that it happened. And then there was like pictures of her there. And she was like, okay, it did happen, but I didn't want you guys to think that I went willingly. 
So then, like, she, so she recanted her story a bit, and so they're like, her, sketchy. And they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, a 10-year-old really wanted to be in a relationship with this 40-year-old Austrian man, you know? Like, n- not a thing. So when she was vacuuming out his car, because she was essentially his slave, sex slave and servant. She was vacuuming. Yeah. Well, this is when she was 18. She was vacuuming out of his car, and he got a phone call and stepped away. And she left the vacuum running and ran away. And he didn't notice that she was gone because the vacuum sound and he was on the phone. I guess for like a good five minutes, she was like jumping fences and screaming at people being like, help me, help me, help me. And people just looked at her like she was crazy and then like turned the other way. And she finally like beat on the door of like some 71 year old uh, woman who let her inside and called the police for her. Yeah, so she's written a book. I actually would like to read that. It's called 3096 Days. So, And it was also made into a movie in Germany of, under the same name. Kind of in this time frame, because she was uh, found in 2006. Also in 2006 was Elizabeth Smart. Everybody knows Elizabeth Smart. Yep. She is, the, and I have my theories on her as well. Like she is the most like pure, wholesome, blonde, white, all-American girl there's ever been. And she was abducted at age 14 by a crazy person. I mean, all of these people are crazy that are abductors. She was abducted over about an eight to nine month period. And she was abducted from Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't even want to get into it. They're just like terrible, terrible, terrible people. And again, the co-conspirator Wanda Barzi is out. I think lives kind of close to Elizabeth Smart. Like that's got to just be like fuck with you really bad. Yeah, because, you know, that's that's her jailer. That's her prison, you know, her prison warden basically for months and months while she was starving in the hills of like California, like Northern California, Southern California, Utah, all around. They just and I actually I did read her memoir. I think it's called My Story. It was it was okay. The one thing I will say, one of the reasons I didn't care for it too, too much is the religious angle to it. And I get that I'm not Mormon or anything, obviously, but she felt that the power of God made it so that she didn't have to seek therapy and counseling. And she she's pretty careful to say, that's not to say that not all people need, like can you know get by without therapy and counseling after a trauma like that, but she didn't have to. I also felt like she was just holding it back a lot because I think she knew that members of her church were going to be reading the book. Oh, right. It felt held back. Like, I felt like she wanted to say more or maybe be a little meaner. But I, but she didn't, and it's fucking crazy. She had to turn the other cheek. Yeah, and I mean, she is, like, a pretty phenomenal human being. So by, by no means do I dislike her. I just felt like she was holding back in her memoir a little bit. And then when I went on to read other people's memoirs, they didn't hold back, and I really appreciated that about it. But I, I also just don't think it was in her nature. She was only 14 years old. And she was she was found like nine or like eight or nine months later. Or so she is doing very well. And she actually Good. in 2008, she helped write the handbook for kidnapping survivors with the United States Department of Justice. Very good. Yes. Finally, something good. Yes. Well, and a lot of these people that I'm talking about that are survivors, they've done a lot of like phenomenal things after right, their, yeah, the, the yeah. horrible things that have happened to them. And then I, I mentioned Madeline McCann. That was in 2007 in Portugal. I won't say too, too much about her other than that that case very much kind of shines a light on some of the kind of obsession that we have with beautiful 
blonde, blue, you know, I was going to say blue-haired, blonde children. Um, Blue-eyed, blonde children that are ridiculously cute and they will always get airtime over a kid of color, unfortunately. And fortunately, I don't know. You know, I wish, you know, all missing kids were given equal airtime. I wish there were no missing kids. There you go. There you go. I was going to mention another blonde hair, blue eyed person, but then I'm like, God damn, this, there's a trend going on here. So I'll, I'll barely well, mention her. There's thousands of missing kids. But so. these are the most prominent cases that people are obsessed with. And they like it's really hard to ignore the fact that I'm talking about primarily blonde hair, blue eyed people, especially, you know, like women and small boys. And it does seem like boys are more likely to be killed than girls are. Anyways, that's just a notice. I know I haven't done haven't done an equal number, but anyways. Sherry Papini is another weird abduction thing that's still ongoing that happened in Redding, California in 2016. We might have to cover her. It's very weird. A lot of people think it was staged. I like weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. And then, of course, we talked about Jamie Kloss as one of the big stories of 2019. She, similar to a lot of the other abductees, she was 14 years old when she was abducted. She was able to get to freedom, and I hope that she is living a decent life now with her remaining family because both her mother and father were killed before she was abducted by the biggest piece of shit ever, Jake Patterson. Anyways, that's all I've got. Are you sure? <laughs> Those are the big cases, and I very purposely held back on a few because we're going to start talking about I could them. tell you're showing great restraint. I know, I know. I'm Thank obsessed. You. So obviously one of the biggest ones that we didn't cover or yet, because we're going to go over it in more detail, is the story of Johnny Gosh. And I know how you are with conspiracy theories and stuff. And I was like, you should do Johnny Gosh. There's a couple rabbit holes to go down. And you have been in emotional turmoil all week long. You've been angry this week because of it. You've been very livid. <laughs> this stuff, it uh, it does take a toll on you. I don't know. Yeah. Because a lot of these people are still walking around, like, untouched. Yeah. That and are, like, implicated in it. They, Some of these people are in high places telling uh, us how, like, how we are, you know, supposed to live. Yeah, like, setting laws and mandates and stuff. And then I very purposely did not mention Ariel Castro, the monster of Cleveland, Ohio. His victims and survivors are Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus. And the reason I didn't mention it is because I'm going to be going into them in the last part of our kidnapping quote unquote series because I read all of their memoirs and I'm, I just finished Michelle Knight's today. So I've been going down that rabbit hole of that horrendous monster. And then, of course, no one can forget the incredibly sad story and incredibly heartwarming survivor story of J.C. Dugard, who was abducted for about, I would say, like 19 years or so. And she that it's it's crazy. And she the four the, these four women whose memoirs I've read recently, uh, I just I'm astounded by how eloquent just just how fucking okay they are. I'm I'm sure they're not okay, but goddamn, they're amazing writers and they've gone through so much shit. So yeah, I've been listening to a lot of fucked up stuff too, but mine are like powering survivor stories, and yours is like 
not. Like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. So you want to get into it a little bit? I know we don't have a ton of time left, but you yeah, could definitely well, get started. All right, well, let's do this. So this is Johnny Gosh, so, part one. Johnny Gosh. Oh, gosh. So September 5th, 1982 was a Sunday, and 12-year-old John David Gosh left his house to start his paper route. He'd been delivering newspapers for about a year, saving up for a dirt bike. And Johnny's father, John Sr., always went with Johnny on his Sunday paper routes. The night before this, at their dinner, the family's dinner, it was kind of an odd night because everyone was home having dinner together, which I guess was an odd thing at the house. Hmm. Johnny asked his mom, Noreen, if he could do the paper route alone this next whatever Sunday. Noreen is a loving mom, but she's a bit intense. She says no. So Johnny, this next morning, he leaves in the morning to start his route. Same time that he always does, I assume. But his father isn't there hmm. with him. So there's just kind of like a lot of things out of place. Like right before his This is the only time his father doesn't go with him. And it's like one of the only times that they're all having dinner together the night before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like this, you know, right from the offset, there are things that are off. Right. And so he brings his red wagon that he used for hauling all the papers and his little wiener dog, Aww. Gretchen. She's very cute. Yeah. They're buds. Best buds. <laughs> By 7 a.m., neighbors started calling the gosh home, complaining that they hadn't received their papers yet. At first, Johnny's parents thought he might have overslept, so they checked his room. What? That doesn't make any sense. Well, the dad. I know. That's the part that doesn't Th make sense. Yeah, so it's like, oh, he must have overslept. It's like, no, you were supposed to go with him. How oh, do you not know where it? he oh, is? It's fucking 7 o'clock? It's like hours huh. after you were supposed to be with him. Where am I usually at 7 o'clock? On a Sunday. On a Sunday. Helping my son with his paper route. Yeah. That's mm. weird. Super weird already. So. Conspiracy. Yeah. They check his room and then they find that he's gone, obviously, and he's taking his wagon and Gretchen because he's doing his fucking paper route like he like does. Like he always all does. Those, yeah. yeah. So John Sr. leaves the house to go find Johnny and he finds Johnny's wagon filled with all the newspapers just two blocks away. And it looked like he just walked away, abandoning his route which would be very uncharacteristic mm -hmm. for him because he wasn't the kind of kid start something like that and just walk away. He uh, always finished what he started. And Gretchen, the wiener dog, returned to the gosh home alone. Johnny's parents knew something was wrong immediately and called police. While Noreen waited at the house for the police to arrive, John Sr. left and finish Johnny's paper route. That's weird. It is kind of weird, but their phone was ringing off the hook. With he people just like, finished his paper route? Yeah, well, I guess all these people were calling. and like They're like, I need my fuck? fucking where's news. It? I'm trying to take a shit, and I can't. <laughs> where's my paper? <laughs> to, to shit in. <laughs> I got to shred it up from my hamster's Ca cage. <laughs> it's Richard Gere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's all um, coming back. Yeah, full circle. So 
they wanted to keep their phone lines open just in case Johnny tried to call or, you know, something like that. Okay. Okay, and, that's not you know, that weird, I guess. You're right. And it's the early 80s. No call waiting. No cell phones. Yeah. No beepers. Yeah. Maybe. They just invented yeah. fire not that long before. Yeah. <laughs> it took police 45 minutes to arrive to the Gosh home. And the station was only 10 blocks away. So maybe it was casual Sunday. I don't know. What city is this? This is in Des Moines, Iowa. Sorry, it, I didn't state that earlier. I mean, that might have something to do with it. That's not a, well, no, that's a big city. Yeah. I, mean, I know. I was trying to a, think, like, I'm like, if you're out in the sticks, then maybe I could see. They're just busy. Eating donuts. Chucking corn or whatever they do with corn. There's a lot of corn around there, I think. Yeah. Black market fetus. Aren't they from <clears throat> Des Moines? Yeah, I think so. And or, like Slipknot? Yeah. <laughs> I only know that because the, the only place I've ever. The only place. Slipknot fan over here. The only bar I've ever been to in Des Moines, ever. The one time I was there for one night. She's it was cordially at the invited bar. to the Slipknot bar. And I talked shit about Slipknot in front of the dude who owned it that was in Slipknot. Well, you're lucky that you live to tell. I know. Because those guys are serious. Well, I- They're serious. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. So. <coughs> or is that, did I do a Papa Roach thing? Yeah, I don't that wanna, wasn't Slipknot, but I don't. I have no idea what Slipknot sounds like. I just think of that Shreds video. Tonight. <laughs> and that's how I think Slipknot sounds. Yeah, you're not, I don't think it's far off. <laughs> All right, go for it. Sorry, I'm, I'm ruining. You're drunk and trying to, like, tell the hardest story ever to tell. I'm not that drunk. Okay. Like I said, even though it was Oh, my gosh, it's almost 2 a.m. 10 blocks away, uh, it took police 45 minutes to get to the house. They were telling the Goshes that Johnny just ran away. So the Goshes contacted their neighbors, and word spread quickly about Johnny's disappearance. Some witnesses started coming forward. There were several paper boys doing different routes, and they would all pick up their papers at the same spot, like it would just get dumped in one central space. Mm-hmm. And they would just take what they needed and do their thing. So multiple people saw Johnny talking to someone in a two-tone blue Ford Fairmont car. Mm-hmm. One neighbor, the only adult around when the boys were picking up the papers, saw Johnny talking to the person in the car, giving directions. Johnny asked this neighbor, John Rossi, a retired lawyer, if he could help the driver. As Mr. Rossi approached the car, the driver made a speedy U-turn and sped away, blowing through a stop sign. Johnny told the other paper boy friends that he had that the driver creeped him out and that he was going to go home. It's reported that before the car sped off, it flashed either its headlights or the dome light three times, seemingly hmm. a signal to someone else. Hmm. And that's like verified witnesses yeah. too. Yeah. One of the paper boys reported seeing a tall man walk out from the bushes between two houses walking towards Johnny, like after this signal. That's weird. Is it Sasquatch? <laughs> I don't, it just sounds so like it doesn't just, say how hairy he was. Okay, it's just strange. Yeah, it's strange as fuck. I know everything about this case is strange. So reports say the car returns and this tall man grabs Johnny and forces him into the car and they speed off. 
It was later discovered that the vehicle had Nebraska license plates. At this pl- at this time, police insisted Johnny was a runaway. A very common thing in Des Moines, apparently. Well, and like we were saying, 92%. percent common excuse. Well, yeah. So they can get all these kids to the international pedophile rings. Was like the, I want to always say the Bermuda Triangle, but it's Bohemian Grove. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. But the Bermuda Triangle is not Bohemian Grove. <laughs> yeah, those are different. And then the Franklin Credit Union thing that's this right yeah that's this i don't even spoiler know. spoiler alert Anyways, spoiler alert yeah. no one knows what that is <laughs> except for like the four people who know what that is okay good on you four people so <clears throat> at this time there's a 72 hour waiting period before you could officially claim a child missing mm-hmm and this was actually a law that the goshes eventually get changed Oh. But we'll get to that later. Uh, right away, the goshes and police get off to a bad start. It seems like the police's lack of interest, they, they just didn't really they didn't see. Give a fuck. There's like no initiative to like. They're like, why would we look for a kid who clearly ran away? Yeah, they just yeah. didn't believe that he was kidnapped or anything like that. Even um, though there are witnesses. Right. So this prompted the goshes to take things into their own hands. And they organized a search party. And about 20 neighbors gathered at a local park to help search for Johnny. And according to Noreen, the police chief, what was his name? He's got a funny name. Like Chaz Orley or something. Yeah, it's, or- it's- Orley Clooney. Wait, I got it. Oh, I got, I got the first name? Yeah, it's Orley oh. Clooney, yeah. Oh, wow. I actually got kind of close. Yeah, nice work. Uh, he shows up to the park and stands up on this picnic table, and he's all drunk, apparently. And yeah, he starts is... shouting through a megaphone at the people that are volunteering their time to go search for this missing kid. And he starts shouting at them, saying, he's just a damn runaway. Go home. Yeah, that's problematic. That's the police chief in Des Moines. I bet he didn't have to step down. He sticks around for some more. For some more drunk debauchery. Flubbery, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, apparently he was a pretty bad drunk. But regardless of what this police chief was saying, they kind of searched through the neighborhoods and stuff, but they don't find anything. Because he's a runaway, right? Dun, dun, dun. I guess we'll just have to find out next week. Yes. Part two of Johnny Gosh. Yeah. Because that is. We'll leave it there. Literally the thinnest surface of this very deep, crazy abduction. We have. Yeah. We haven't even. The the fingernails not even on the skin yet. We haven't even made a scratch. Excuse me. What? Oh, oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) I was like. Fingernail is not the first layer of skin. That would be the epidermis. It's 2 a.m. We're getting tired. Amy's been to college and she's got A whole bunch of times. She's got degrees, so. I've got degrees. (laughs) She's here to say the big words. I've got degrees for days. All right. So. (laughs) 
We're going to cut that out. <laughs> well, you can... What? I was... Go you ahead. do it. No, no you no. do it. I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> you can send us a shout out. Your favorite Where? dumpster pick. Uh, at, you can just email us. <laughs> just at, tell us. Yeah. Just scream. Just give us the coordinates for your favorite dumpster. Uh, <laughs> and, we'll, at, and that's where we'll, we'll host the next podcast. Yeah, we'll go take a dump in it. <laughs> that's not what dumpsters are for. Why are they called dumpsters? I know, I know. I think the oh. same thing. Well, someday we'll crack the code on that one. But until then, <laughs> we'll crack just... crack the dump. S- s- yes. <laughs> Send the dump in our Gmail <laughs> at truecrimedumpster.com. No, that's not our email. Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> truecrimedumpster at gmail.com or our website, truecrimedumpster.com. Or our Facebook group, which is pretty off the heezy, as the kids say. When do they say that? They said it like 20 years ago. They said it like five years after the story I'm telling. Um, That would be their Facebook group called True Crime Dumpster. Hold your tongue and say it. We're also on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. No one, no one had True Crime Dumpster, so we didn't have to really do too much. Yeah, to the name. weird. No one wants that name. <laughs> we thought it was going to be really hot. <laughs> and then uh, our Twitter is the only one we had to alter, which is TC Dumpster because it was too long. We needed an alias because that's where we do all our bad shit is on Twitter. So. And now Kevin knows how to tweet. Yeah, so and watch he's been out. going down a tweety rabbit hole. I'll slide into your DMs. You don't even know. <laughs> He'll take a dump in your DMs. <laughs> yeah. Who did that? Not me. That's the crime that you have to solve. Yeah. Who took a dump in this DM? <laughs> I don't even know what we're saying. Um, but we love you. We care about you. <laughs> Guard your DMs. We'll see you later. Have a nice life. Bye. Johnny was a great kid. Do anything for anybody. He was a delightful little guy. So happy and just fun to have in the house. And he would be so kind to other people as he started to grow up.